This week on Writers Inc. I think it's so important. I think it's the thing that can transform you and your writing. So that moment where you reach out and it's not just something that you're doing for yourself, but something you're willing to share with other people, you're willing to submit your writing for other people's feedback. I mean, these are all big steps. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. All right, Zach, you getting ready for Salem Mass? Dude, I'm, yeah, like, I'm I'm excited. Uh, you know, I, I usually... My wife knows this about me. I usually don't. Um, you might know this about me at this point, actually. Like, I don't, don't get excited. I don't get excited until like the day of. But um, <clears throat> this trip, I'm getting excited. I think part of it is because uh, next Saturday, or I, I can't remember when exactly this is going up, but soon, the end of the like the last Saturday of June, my daughter is going to my my parents' house for a week, and then my in laws' house for a week. So she's gonna be gone for two weeks, and uh, I'm. I, is it bad to say I'm excited about that? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it? Is it? I mean, I'm sure like a couple of days will pass, and then I will be like probably lying on the couch behind me crying. But uh, but yeah, it's like we, you know. So we'll have a few days to kind of hang out here, and before we before we head up to Salem and stuff. So it's gonna be a nice little nice little couple of weeks I have coming up. A little bit more quiet around the house than normal. Nice. So, I was I was gonna go. I I got an, an email from Jay telling me about it, and they gave me the dates that you guys are doing like happy hours and stuff. And I called around a little bit. There's not like a, a single hotel room anywhere near you guys available during during that time. Yeah, and it's the you know it's Fourth of July weekend, and I think it's the first major holiday post pandemic. So I'm not surprised that uh, that everything's unfortunately so booked. Yeah, booked up. I was wondering if you were gonna try to come. So I'm well. I'm, I, now, I wanted I'm, I'm to. I'm disappointed. <laughs> Honestly, my, my sister is coming um, with her family and they've got a family they always vacation with. So we've got, I think, like eight to 10 people that are going to be staying with us. Um, but they all wanted to see Salem. So I figured I could combine the two things. And we're, we're like maybe an hour away, hour and 10 minutes or, or something like that. But if I'm going to go to Salem and I'm going to hit a, hit a bar for happy hour, I'm not driving back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we'll keep checking around. If we can find someplace relatively close to stay, then we'll, we'll still find some way to do it. Do you it. want me um, to give you some motivation, some more motivation to come? Like what? The, the Friday and we cars? get there. Is, the Friday and we get there is my birthday. Oh, okay. Well, so there's right. a little more motivation for you. <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 you're what? Twenty five, twenty six, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> not fifty. I can tell you that. So oh, not even forty. Man. I'll tell you, shots fired. <laughs> I, I can tell because you haven't gotten up to use the bathroom yet during the podcast. The fifty year olds in the room have to. Well, I do have. I you know the funny, the ironic thing is that I'm bald and have more gray than both of you. So. <laughs> 
know, so it's 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 okay. So you know. Oh man. Um, before I forget, um, you know, so I'm I'm on the board with with ITW, and we've got uh, Virtual Thriller Fest coming up. This is the last one that's virtual, and the next year they're they're going to be back live in in New York. Um, but I'm, I'm teaching a master class. Um, so I get a lot of emails from people that want to jump in, you know, with mentoring and stuff like that. And I've really been dialing all that back because I just don't have a whole lot of time anymore. Um, but it, but if there's anybody out there that would like to work with me on some level or are just you know interested in that type of thing, head over to to Thriller Fest and just sign up for the master class. Um, I think the last day to sign up is, is June 28th. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there because I haven't really mentioned it on the air yet, but um, it's, it's a really cool environment and they, they keep the classes relatively small, which is, is kind of nice, you know, when it comes to a, a, a teaching group. Cool. All right. Make sure you guys could check that out if you want to be in JD's masterclass. Yes, sir. Any other news or anything going on this week? No, I li- have you, did you listen to Creative Pen this week with Joanna? I did about, yeah. about it about NFTs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I honestly I, I love the idea of NFTs. Um, every time I hear about it, I get all fired up thinking there's something new that we're going to be able to play with. Um, but I, I I tend to walk away from these even more confused than I, I was going in. Like I'm still not quite sure what an NFT is. I'm not quite sure as an author how we go about using it. I just know that it's probably something we should be watching very closely. I, I don't know if you guys have been messing with. Yeah, I've been thinking about as far as the as I don't know exactly how you use it as an author. I mean, like I'm. The, the base behind it is like the trading card market has really heated up in the last few years again, which has me feeling like I need to go in my garage because I have a box of old cards in there. Um, but and, and the NFTs have kind of popped up in conjunction with that. So like they're great for the trading card market because you can like that's <clears throat> a lot of what's going on is they're making like these, you know, I don't know if you know exactly how they work. I'm sure you do. But, you know, for anyone who doesn't, it's basically a like a, a digital image that has a very um it has a specific like i guess barcode attached to it or it's it's on the blockchain you know, so it's identified right. yeah like a blockchain mm-hmm. so like it can't if it gets duplicated like people will know and they'll know it's a fake or whatever so they're one of a kind you know digital images basically and like it's it's crazy how fast they've kind of like become a thing and it it, it is kind of interesting to think about how authors and definitely something I think to keep an eye on, like you're saying. Yeah, this is some technology I'm really excited about. I, yeah. I think it has tremendous potential. One of the things with, with the NFTs is that you get, uh, if you build it into the original, I don't know if you call it a contract for lack of a better term, but when you create the thing, you can you build in your percentage resale. So forever, whenever someone re- sells their NFT to somebody else, the creator gets their percentage of it. And, and that's, know that. that is yeah. completely different from any other sort of used tradable markets that exist today. So I, I think this is going to have tremendous potential for the author community. Um, G- Gary Vaynerchuk is doing a lot with this right now. If folks are, um, if want to see how a content marketer and, and um, you know, someone like that is working it, but I think it's got a lot of potential. Well, I, I kind of, to, to explain it to myself, I think of it as like a serial number, you know, like stamped yes. on whatever the, the item is that, make, that makes it unique. Yeah. Um, what I'm having trouble wrapping my head around is how that is implemented on, on the book side. Like, are, are we going to take an EPUB and then like somehow it, attach an NFT to it? So now that EPUB file is, is unique and, you know, we can identify it moving forward. Or is an NFT book going to end up becoming its own format, you know, like Moby, like EPUB? Is NFT going to be another one that, you know, eventually like Kindle readers and those types of things will just 
just be able to decipher and read, um, but at the same time be able to, to track. Like, you know, I buy and sell a lot of, um, you know, classic and first edition books. So, like, that really hit home for me. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've like got special editions. Yeah, I've got some that are, are worth upwards of twenty or thirty thousand dollars each, and you know, a lot. A big part of that is being able to, you know, first of all, verify that it's real, um, and then trace the the lineage on it. Um, you know, so I, I've got a feeling like that this will definitely translate into that kind of thing down the road where people will be able to buy and sell or maybe even gift away an, an EPUB file and you'll be able to, you know, see that entire lineage. You know, it went from this person to that person to that person, um, which is sort of like something else we do in our house. Like anytime somebody borrows a book from us, we always make them sign the back of it when they return it with the date. Um, so we can flip that back cover open and we can see everybody who's ever read that book and, and when they read it. And I, I got that from an, an old copy of... Um, uh, Oh, geez. Uh, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes uh, that my mom found at a garage sale. And in the back, it had signatures and dates dating all the way back to like, you know, the early 1900s. And I just I thought it was a cool idea. Um, so I see all that kind of stuff being wrapped up into this, but you know, I, I don't think it's quite there yet. Like I, I, I searched and I tried to find like maybe some type of website where you could upload an EPUB file and turn it into an NFT, like that kind of thing. And um, I, I really couldn't find anything yet. So it, from my standpoint, I'm just I'm watching it really close. It feels like something I really want to get into, you know, as early on as possible because I think it's going to be here to stay. Um, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, Joanna seems to think that there's going to be some some things popping up at the, at the Frankfurt Book Fair around NFTs for authors. So that might be something we keep our eye on. Yeah. It, it might help curb piracy too. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Any awesome. of our friends over Drafted Digital are listening. They need to be working on this. <laughs> Mark. Yeah, that, that, that's honestly where it needs to come from, one of those types of guys. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. Let's uh, take care of some business here, and then we'll get to the interview. Uh, we want to give a shout out, as always, to our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Writing Life. If you are publishing wide, remember with Kobo, there's no exclusivity, there's monthly promotional opportunities, and a real live human being, not an NFT, will answer your email if you have any concerns or problems. That's over at KoboWritingLife.com. We also want to remind folks, if you want to be a patron of the show and uh, attend our live Q&A monthly episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast and one more reminder we are closing in on the last 90 days before the career author summit it will be the first and the last in a way uh in-person career author summit so don't miss out on the opportunity to see the three of us live in addition to many many better speakers but uh that's at the careerauthor.com slash events all right. Uh, who do we got this week, JD? Uh, Jasmine Darsnick. Um, so here, here's the thing. She, she's got a book um, that just came out in April. It's called The Bohemians, historical fiction, um, and it, it's phenomenal. Um, and historical fiction, I, like, it, it's one of those things. Like, I, I kind of swore off of historical fiction for like the longest time, and I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I can hear it already. Um, <laughs> Well, like, uh, here's here's an example. So, like, uh, up until, like, maybe a month ago, my daughter refused to eat anything other than mac and cheese and chicken nuggets. Like, if we put anything else in front of her, you know, food she never tried before, she swore she didn't like it, she swore she would never eat it, and she wanted those those couple of things that she really liked. It's like that, Zach, that's, Zach does that, too. I knew you were yeah. going to say that. I'm just sitting here waiting. <laughs> that's kind it. of That's kind of where I was with historical fiction up until, I, I guess, about three, four years ago or so. Um, then I stayed at this hotel out in Seattle. Um, it was actually when Dacre Stoker and I went to go and see the original Dracula manuscript. Um, and in the floor of the, the, the restaurant next to the hotel, there was a, like a big piece of plexiglass. And like through that plexiglass, you could see down into the basement. And in the basement were all these old items that belonged to somebody. Um, and I didn't know who that somebody was until I researched it a little bit. Um, 
turns out that, you know, back um, when the, the internment camps uh, popped up during World War II and the Japanese were, were taken and put them in, put in, in those, um, at this particular hotel, a lot of Japanese people had items like in the basement and they never actually came back for them. Um, so the hotel itself, you know, cordoned it off and turned it into like a, a little museum, which I, I thought was just really cool because you can, you can see these things. Um, and Jamie Ford, an author, he wrote a really good book called The Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, um, which is basically about this, about those specific items in that specific hotel. So you know, I, I, it was this like little chain of events happened where I saw that I, I researched it, you know, heard about Jamie's book, went out and read that book. And then I was after that, I was hooked. I, I just started devouring historical fiction, um, realized it was something I actually do like quite a bit um you know i just i just I never opened my mind to actually trying it um but th this particular book is, is phenomenal it, it really just digs into you know san francisco um and i don't want to go into a, a whole lot of the detail there but even though it's an historical fiction novel like it, it reads almost like something that that could happen today um in, in a lot of ways but it's extremely engaging extremely well written um probably one of the best books i've read in, in the last you know year or so Wow, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love historical fiction and I was just immersed in this world. Um in much the same way that that readers of pure fantasy get get just sucked in. That's how I get sucked in with historical fiction. And I felt like I was on the streets of San Francisco in the early 1900s. Yeah, absolutely. Um so here she is, Jasmine Darsnick. How old do you think Chris Isaac is? <laughs> I mean, I can answer that, but I'm wondering why you're asking. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe he's in his mid-60s. Wow, you're pretty good. He's 64. Yeah. 64. Yes. And, and I, that, that kind of really shook me for a moment because I, I saw in one of your bios that you were a fan of Elvis and Sinatra and Chris Isaac. And so <laughs> I went down this rabbit hole, this YouTube rabbit hole, and of course I land on Wicked Game. And I look and, and I see that Wicked, that video came out in 1991, 30 years ago. I know. I know. I love him, though. I mean, he looks amazing. I have to say I, he's a great performer. So no shame at all. You know, I have no shame. <laughs> have you ever seen him perform live? Oh, yeah. He's amazing. Such a um, I mean, he's got such charisma. He's really one of those performers you should see live. He's great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're not here to talk about Chris Isaac. So <laughs> you, you have a wonderful new book out. Uh, I figure we could start talking about it with this quote, which is one of the best historical fiction novels of 2021. And I'm sure you know where that came from. Yeah, it was on an Oprah list. She yes. had a compilation, right? Of best historical fiction of the year, which is amazing. How did you find out about that? Tell me a little bit about it. Let's see. I, you know, my publicist sends these right away. This morning, she just sent me this great New York Times. Um, the Times did a roundup of the best historical fiction for the summer. So these little joyous packages arrive, not not frequently, but every so often I get a just a wonderful little email with that news. Yeah, that is great. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's funny. I'm I'm a trained historian, but I don't write historical fiction, and I'm. It almost feels like it's seasonal to me. Is there a season to to publishing historical fiction? I don't think so, and I think even that genre classification is a little tricky. You know, I mean, I think there there's a really popular mode of it that is a little lighter, and so that might be 
kind of more of your summer read, right? But then what are we calling historical fiction, right? Like Philip Roth wrote historical fiction, Shakespeare wrote historical fiction, right? And we wouldn't think of those as summer reads, right? So good point. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the is that the label you use when, when you're talking to folks? Do you call your your the Bohemians historical fiction? Yeah, with that caveat that I think it's a pretty broad category. I'm just as happy happy calling it contemporary fiction. I don't like women's fiction. I think that that's usually, to me, that's a little bit uh, condescending. I don't like that label. But historical fiction, I'm okay with because I think it really is a pretty um, multifaceted genre. Yes, agreed. So tell us a little bit about The Bohemians for for people who might not have read it yet. Uh, What's the premise? What's it about? Give us a little overview. Okay, great. It starts in 1918 with Dorothea Lange's arrival in San Francisco. Now, if you know Dorothea Lange, it's probably from her photograph, Migrant Mother, which is one of the most famous photographs in in history, really. It was taken during the Depression, and it's that mother looking out into the distance um, with her children around her. And you don't need to know much about Lange, except that she she's our iconic American photographer, a great chronicler chronicler of American history, but not that much is known about her her origin story. So how she became the woman she became. And that's what I wanted to tell. So she lands in San Francisco in 1918, is robbed of all her money the day she gets here. Within a year, she's running this fabulous portrait studio. And the book focuses really on her relationship with her Chinese American assistant, um, a woman who's barely named in historical records. So sort of follows the two of them in 1920s San Francisco. Yes. You know, it's historical fiction, but it's also, uh, it felt timeless to me. Like I could almost imagine someone stepping off the Greyhound bus in the middle of downtown Los Angeles in the 80s and kind of having a very similar experience. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, young people chasing dreams, will that ever end? I don't think so. My family had come from Iran in the 70s. I mean, we were also very much chasing a dream. And San Francisco seems to have, um, you know, invited more than its fair share of dreamers. For sure. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the decision to include some Walt Whitman in, in the book. Oh, wow. You know, Whitman was, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, for these bohemians in San Francisco, he was a real, um, I mean, he, his flamboyance, think of it, and his uh, his presence, he, he's almost sort of like a, a, a sort of a spirit animal <laughs> for these bohemians. And one of, in one of the early sections of the book, they go to a party and a very flamboyant character called the King of Bohemia recites Walt Whitman in a abandoned palace on Knob Hill. And this really happened. This really happened. Um, he was, I don't know, he was just taken up by these sort of, you know, artist types. And, um, and so it was just really fun to Im- kind of embed him into the book. Yeah, I love I loved how you introduced that character. I, I have it in front of me. It was so compelling. The king of Bohemia stepped out from behind a pair of velvet curtains, his hair molded, his skin gleaming. <laughs> and I mean, the thing about San Francisco, honestly, I don't think any place has had more characters. I mean, really, these characters were larger than life. And sometimes I almost had to tone it down. But king of Bohemia was one of those characters where I just could not not include him. Right. I mean, he's just so fabulous. Yes. Tell, tell us about the research process in, for San Francisco or the story or, or any aspect of it. 
Yeah. So that's probably my favorite part about writing is I just love these speaking of rabbit holes. That's just where I would happily live if I could. And everything started for me with the building. So the, the main setting of Bohemians is this four story artist colony in the heart of what's now the financial district. So where the tra Transamerica pyramid is, there used to be this four story artist colony. Mark Twain lived there. Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, lots of painters um, came through. 800 artists and writers lived in this space. So I, when I heard about this place, even though I'd grown up in the Bay Area, I was just transfixed. And so everything sort of bloomed out of this fascination with the building and thinking about what was San Francisco like during this period of time. It was an incredibly exciting time, but also San Francisco is a segregated city. So a lot of the research had to do also with looking at the racial politics of the period, particular, particularly focused on the treatment of the Chinese. And since one of the characters is Chinese American, there was a lot of thought given to just a lot of exploration and, and, and research into what was their experience like in San Francisco. Yeah. Wow. Uh what what did that look like for you, say, on a day-to-day -day basis when you were in full research mode? What were the kind of things you were doing? I mean, it's pretty messy and I like it like that. You know, I don't start out with kind of bullet pointed lists of I first I'm I really like to be led by the research itself. So sometimes the things actually usually the material that was most compelling was what I thought wouldn't be necessarily. So I read about um city planning architecture in San Francisco. And you wouldn't think that's very exciting, but it was, it was so fascinating to look at how women only really enter the streets of the city beginning at the turn of the century. And it has to do with how public space is used. So it could start with looking at a building and then I start to learn about, let's say department stores of that era, which were a venue where women congregated. And then I'm looking at what are the clothes they're wearing when they're coming in, right? And then I'm looking at, um, you know, what what is, uh, what are some of this, the sort of, what are, what are maybe some of the movies that are playing, right? So it tends to be this kind of crazy chase on a day-to-day -day can be so different, um, just depending on where I am. Yeah, and do you prefer, uh, I think I know the answer to this, but online books, libraries, museums, what kind of places are you visiting for the research? Yeah, you know, I, I actually really enjoy all of those things. I think we're so fortunate that we have access to all these different modalities. I'm really fortunate that I live near the San Francisco Public Library, which has an incredible archive of materials in San Francisco history, of course. So that was terrific. But also, it's um, it was also equally it was also equally exciting to be able to dive into the internet and do some searches um, into so much is being digitized. So looking at Lang's photographs, for example, Dorothea Lang's entire archive is digitized now. I, it would have been hard for me to access that, especially once the pandemic hit, right? So, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say it's just the one thing. It's this you know fantastic kind of weave of different elements. Right, right. What, uh, what was the impact uh, from your research on the city at that time after the big earthquake? Were there still sort of issues that they were dealing with or had that sort of been fixed by then? Yeah, it's, San Francisco it has been called an instant city. So it was totally destroyed it five times before the earthquake and fires of 1906. So this is a city that has remade itself, rebuilt itself numerous times. 
San Francisco by 1915 was in sparkling shape. It had built itself up um, and it threw itself a party, the 1915 exposition, um, Pan Pacific Exposition. So it was a pretty exciting, hopeful place, but there were still there was still a lot of corruption in the city government. That's one thing. It was a segregated city. I've mentioned that. So the Chinese were the only group of San Franciscans who were segregated into separate camps during the earthquake and fires. And that pernicious discrimination, it just, it survived the earthquake and found new forms. So so those were some of the ways it changed and didn't, right? So on the surface, quite new, but beneath the surface, there were a lot of um, political and racial tensions. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'd like to uh, maybe shift a little bit and talk uh, about your career as a writer. Um, yeah. can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that first uh, experience of the writing workshop at the Book Passage? <laughs> I love to talk about this because in some ways that was the sweetest most you know just most fun time of all when I was just starting out and I wasn't really thinking of publishing so I had I was in graduate school I was getting a degree in English literature had always loved to of course read and also write but I never thought I could write a book I was I wasn't making lots of progress on that dissertation as happens <laughs> and so I enrolled in this creative writing workshop in my wonderful book passage bookstore down the street and I was in that workshop it was 10 weeks long and I enrolled in it for two years so 10 weeks and 10 weeks and 10 weeks and I would show up with you know I think we had five minutes allotted to us to read each week and I'd show up at our workshop and I was terrified and I was excited. And I was also in the company of all these really fantastic, it happened to be women in our group. And that's where I found my, myself in a lot of ways, but for sure my writer's voice. And I began to think of myself as, as someone who, who might write a book. And is that an experience that you relay to younger, less experienced writers as, as like, this really worked for me. It's something you should consider. I think it's so important. I think it's the thing that can transform you and your writing. So that moment where you reach out and it's not just something that you're doing for yourself, but something you're willing to share with other people. You're willing to submit your writing for other people's feedback. I mean, these are all big steps and mostly I think, for me, I, I just, I think that's the thing I relay the most to my students. I teach an MFA program is this community, make sure you avail yourselves of it. And now I've got a crop that just graduated. I say, hold tight, not to everyone, but one or two, these are your people. These are the people who are gonna keep you accountable, keep you showing up. Um, and, uh, and so for sure, that's something that I relay to them all the time. Yes. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because as a uh, former teacher myself, I want to ask you a question that the layperson might not quite understand, but you'll get it. I don't want to okay. ask you what you teach. I want to ask you how you teach. Oh, by conversation. Oh, explain. I think my dream class, and it has happened a few times. I'm not going to say this is typical, but in my dreams, the, the ultimate class is I walk in, I ask a question, and that's all I do for the next two hours. <laughs> that I have posed a question so rich and the 
people in the room are so engaged that they're able to carry on a conversation and let that flow and ebb and, you know, take them unexpected places. So I try to, I try to be present, but I don't dominate. I, I really am, I'm there to ask questions and be attentive and, and to guide them. That's my, that's my, that's my way. That sounds like a great approach in a writing group too. I think it is. And it depends also where you're at. So I know that when I started writing, I needed encouragement. I didn't need someone to tell me everything that was wrong because I think I would have stopped right then. So there are opportunities and that's not the only thing I do when I work one-on-one -on -one with students, there's lots of room for feedback and, you know, more directed approach. But a lot of times when you're starting out, it's so, it's so frightening and people are really so unsure of themselves that I think they need more encouragement at that moment. And that's where I think that that approach really serves them. Yes. Yeah. R related to that, you had an interesting, uh, I don't know if this was in an interview or somewhere on your website, but you had this perspective about being a first generation immigrant. And I'm wondering if you talk about how that experience has sharpened your powers of perception. Mm. I think about this a lot. Would I have become a writer if I wasn't an immigrant? Because I think being a writer often stems from some way that we were unsettled in our lives and maybe our childhoods, maybe later on. And immigration is a profound unsettling, right? I mean, it's this, there's no place that's native to me, really. I couldn't go back to Iran and feel at home. I don't, even after th this many years, I don't feel entirely at home in America, though I should. And yeah, I think it's, um, I think that's really useful in that it gives you this perspective. You're never taking things for granted. I'm super attuned to, to differences and sort of looking for patterns and making sense of things. It's so it's a way of being in the world that I think aligns nicely with the skills you need. That first class noticer, I think I, I'm forgetting, Sal Bellow, I think said, a writer has to be a first class noticer. And an immigrant is a first-class notice, noticer because your survival depends on it. Yeah, you mentioned um, feeling like an outsider in so, in so many aspects of, of life. Uh, where do you feel like an insider? Among writers, I mean, I am so much, the, the Jasmine you're seeing right now is I'm so much happier and more at home in myself and my community and my life since I started um, falling in with writers. They're my people. I, there's just something I think we get each other. We were, were each other's people. And I had never had that feeling until I started going to these workshops, going to writers conferences, teaching in a writing program. And it doesn't even matter. We could be writing really different things, but I find I can forge connections pretty, pretty quickly and deeply with all kinds of writers. So that's amazing. And I feel so lucky. Yeah, there's definitely a bond and a, and a common vocabulary and, and even lifestyles that uh, I, I agree with you. You almost know instantly when you're talking to another writer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your writing process. You have a lot going on in your life. Uh, do, do you schedule writing time? Do you have a certain place that you like to do at a certain time of the day? I think the daily practice really helps. And that's not to say I'm perfect with this, but I'm very aware that that's the thing that's helped get work done in the past. And so 
now I'm starting and beginning to write a new novel. And I know that it's that daily practice over time. I've in some ways, you know, I'm easier on myself in that. I don't think I have to write for eight hours a day. The way I think of it now is if you write two to three hours with deep focus, with deep attention, and this is, this is the tricky thing, right? I mean, in this modern age, it's about, I'm actually thinking of reinstalling freedom on my computer and, you know, all those tricks, because I think for me, that ability to focus, to go in is so vital to my creative focus. So I'm guarding my time. I'm, I'm working probably two or three hours a day. I've got lots, like you say, I've got lots going on. I take care of my mom. So there's, there's always, you know, there's always a lot, but I try to do it first thing in the day because if I shuffle it down the deck, um, it's probably not going to get done. I love the fact that you didn't mention a word count or page count anywhere in there. You, you said two to three hours of focused time. Uh, do, do those kind of tangible targets make any difference in your, in your output or your process? They for sure have a place. So I've written every book I've written, I've written under contract without having written most of it. So, and that's the case right now. And I do that purposefully. I like having that deadline. So right now, as I'm starting, I'm not putting that pressure on write a thousand words a day. I find that if I give myself enough time to be entranced by the story, to fall in love with the place and the characters, then things like the word count, it takes care of itself over time, especially when I have that deadline <laughs> kind of, you know, winking at me um, ever, ever more closely. So, so there, there's a time and place for sure for thinking about more, how do you say metrics, right? But in the beginning, I'm really just trying to fall in love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you ever do any type of simple math, like for that deadline and working your way back? Like, okay, I know that it's due on this day and it's going to be the X number of words I must submit. So I have to average these many words. Like, does that ever factor into your process? I, I just, I don't work like that. Yeah. I think the thing that's changed for me that's maybe most like that and that I'm really being objective and trying to put some sort of metric on it is I have a very focused outline now. I didn't do that when I started writing. So I find that that really helps me work more efficiently if I've got at least, and I'm not wedded to it 100% necessarily, but it just allays a lot of that anxiety. Like, what am I doing? Am I doing the right, you know? So I spend more time up front now building out that outline. It's, it's probably about five or six pages, pretty detailed. And that's something that I've collaborated on with my agent and maybe a friend or two, a writer friend. Yeah. And I always felt like that's a false dichotomy. This, this idea that you either sit down on a blank page or you sit down with this massive outline. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily that, that, that black and white, but can you talk a little bit about how you went from maybe being less structured to more structured in, in your pre-production? Yeah, I, you know, I think that first book, I it, it was for me at least the book that I had to write, but I didn't know, I didn't have writing practices, I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't really have good working habits <laughs> around my writing. I, and I think also very often in the first, in those first years of writing, you're mostly writing for yourself, you're writing for yourself. 
And um, and so as time has gone by, I'm just more aware that this is for somebody, not only for somebody. I mean, it has to please me before it's going to please anybody else. But um, but that that's the thing that's shifted is that I'm just thinking a lot more about um, how can I make this the best version of itself for some reader who may give their time to it. Yeah, excellent. I've, I've uh, one one more question for you. We can kind of wrap up on this one. Uh, you've you're, you're a professor. You're a published author. You, you kind of have your your finger on the pulse of, of the industry. There's been a lot of changes in the publishing industry in in the past few years, and even more so in the past couple years. Where do you see it going? And and you can answer that in in any context, uh, whether it's writers or publishers or the market or anything. This is so hard. I mean, this is why it's so great to have your podcast where you're. <laughs> You're coming at this question every week with a different, with a different guest who's got such specialized knowledge. Um, from my vantage point, it's changed a lot. So I published my first book ten years ago. Ten years ago, I was able to pretty easily, even as a debut author, I got a lot of NPR interviews, um, and that has just faded away. The news outlets. <clears throat> excuse me, the newspaper coverage for books. And the crazy thing, or I mean, there's so many crazy things, but one, one crazy thing is that even if you get that review that you've been, you know, what dreaming of, it won't necessarily affect your sales, right? So what I hear a lot from my publisher is that it's about word of mouth. It's about, um, I mean, obviously writing the best book you can and, um, and that that's it, it's really the it's a reader driven market is is the phrase that I've heard is it's reader driven, and nobody's quite sure. I don't think the publishers are if there's any one thing. I think we're just all kind of reaching, and and hoping that these various um, platforms and outlets might get us to the readers who are apparently the kings and queens of this new new world all right uh so any of you guys chris isaac fans <laughs> i actually am um but how he's in his 60s how is this happening like, i know I, I saw something yesterday slice alone is, is 74 um his daughter just graduated one of his daughters just graduated high school so they had his age on there um willie nelson is 88 morgan freeman is 84 like everybody is getting old or older or whatever <laughs> but You're not it's supposed like to do that no it's like i i just kind of want to take a snapshot of the way things are and everybody I, should just sort of stay the same i tell you the one that i heard recently that blew my mind is william shatner is 90 yeah yeah, that one blew my mind. I was like, he just doesn't seem like he's 90. That That's probably why. You know, like the guy is out there riding bicycles and, you know, mountain climbing and probably hang gliding and, you know, probably going to launch himself to the moon, and, you know, with SpaceX. Who knows what he's up to? But he's, he's not sitting on his butt, and that's probably what's keeping him young. I just sure hope that Jasmine doesn't think this is our way of segueing into a conversation about her age. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I think we're all Chris Isaac fans in the end. All no, right. we're not. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, but no, it was yeah, it was it was it was a really good interview. I tell you, I like uh, um, I, I, I one thing I really appreciate is when you know she she's talking a little bit about her process and she was talking about how um like I always I always think it's interesting to hear how people work and um you know her I think a lot of times for 
for people, it's hard, like for authors, especially it's hard to get away from that, like mentality of like the eight hour work day. <laughs> and so hearing her talk about that and being like, I only have to work like two or three hours a day. It's almost like, I don't know. I dealt with a little of this early on. Like I almost felt guilty if I wasn't working. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Who's telling me to work eight hours a day, you know, and, and just her and, and also talking about, you know, not really focusing on word count, but just focusing on like time blocking and, just making sure you're making progress and focusing. Like I really appreciated that. Yeah, that's huge. Um, yeah, I, I still have trouble with that. And I think that's the Aspie in me, but you know, I, I've got my butt in my chair every day at, at seven thirty in the morning and I've got an alarm that goes off at, at three o'clock and that's my, my quitting time. Um, and pretty much every hour in between I'm, I'm working and I just, I feel good about that, but at the same well, I time, I feel lazy now. So <laughs> after um, what I just said, but thanks. Like our, our, my, my wife's brother is visiting right now and you know, like they're, they're off actually doing something fun and I'm sitting here talking to you guys instead of doing that. And like, I, I could be off having fun. Like there's no reason for me not to be off having fun, but like, I feel that this is the time of day I'm supposed to be working. So I'm, I'm working. Wait, um, you're not it, a word, uh, word target guy, right? You, you're just pretty much. No, the but I, I've, I've always been pretty lucky when it comes to that. I, I tend to average like two to 3000 words a day, no matter what. Um, as long as I, I write first thing in the morning, if, if I do anything at all that distracts me first, like if I start digging into email or any, anything like that, um, then I get hung up and it's very hard for me to get back to it. And I'm lucky if I get out a thousand words, but for the most part, I, I do pretty well there. Um, I, I do kind of do what you had mentioned earlier. Like I, you know, if I've got a deadline on a book, I figure out where I'm at, you know, number wise, you know, where I need to be. And I, I know roughly what I, I need to do every day in order to hit that. Um, but you know, a lot of those targets are a lot more flexible. I think than people, you know, realize, you know, publishers and editors will move them around a little bit if they know that you're close, you know, they, they want you to turn in a good book. They don't want you to rush it. Um, you know, so they're, 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 it's great to have targets. I think having the deadline out there, you know, a little post-it note on your monitor or whatever, telling you, you have to be done by this date that that's helpful. Um, but it's not a be all, you know, be end and or that I came talk today and, and, end all to the, the world. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Aside from that, um, again, her, her book is, is phenomenal. I, I encourage everybody to get out there and, and pick this one up. Well, next week we will be uh, hosting our live monthly Q&A. So if you are a patron and you want to join us, you'll be getting a message from Zach pretty soon about that. Um, and if you want to become part of that, head on over to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast. So to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.